0: Hey everyone, welcome back to Policy Punchline. Here at the show, we interview scholars, policymakers, and business executives about some of the most urgent issues and frontier ideas in our world today. I'm Tiger Gao. I was recently uh, interviewed as a guest on the Economics and Beyond podcast hosted by Rob Johnson, president of the Institute for New Economic Thinking, known as INET. It is actually the first time I was ever being interviewed on a podcast, so It is also a great honor for me because Rob's guests typically range from Nobel laureates to accomplished public intellectuals, and now he's got Tiger Gout. So uh, it it is quite a a big milestone and and honor for me. Uh, He and I talked for more than three and a half hours, and the interview is being published in two parts, uh, both on his platform and also on Policy Punchline. The first half uh, was released around... March 18th on INET and we're doing it here today. Uh, It's titled podcasting and the fragile public discourse. You may find it on any of the preferred podcasting platforms uh, you like and also on YouTube. Uh, We talked about a range of topics and I spent dozens of hours preparing for this interview with Rob. I think it really captured many of the issues that have been on my mind and the central mission that my fellow Policy Punchline team members and I have been working towards. I do not mean to shamelessly recommend you to listen to me talking for hours, uh, but I'm quite proud of this interview and would be very excited to hear any feedback from you. So the first part is basically Rob interviewing me about media, about podcasting, about my own education experiences. And the second half of the interview is me interviewing Rob about INET, about uh, the future of economics, economics academia, how he uh, transitioned from uh, being a PhD student at, at, at Princeton, studying economics, uh, to going to uh, work on Capitol Hill as a chief economist for the Senate Banking Committee, uh, and then going to work for Soros, uh, and uh, now doing INET. So uh, it's a fi- far-reaching conversation in many aspects. Uh, I'm really, really glad that this took place, and I really hope you enjoyed it. To quickly recap on some of the points I talked about in this first half, uh, we started off by talking about my own education experiences because I w- went to a boarding school and now I'm at Princeton. Uh, you could say that maybe I had experienced the path of you know the quote-unquote elite education, but I also talked about how I didn't find the kind of exciting intellectual fulfillment that I was looking for in this traditional path. Uh, And it compelled me to forge my own path and build my own ecosystem, and hence uh, the genesis of policy punchline. I I talk about uh, the dangerous intellectual thought bubbles that Princeton students and the elites in general could be in, how sometimes they have a sense of moral righteousness and lack of self-awareness that are preventing them from empathizing with the dilemmas and mindsets of most Americans. And this is a huge mindset opportunity cost for the highly educated because they are more incentivized to pursue what is seen as sexy by the peers uh, rather than working on urgent problems in the world. And there seems to be a deep naivete and lack of nuanced understanding of the complexity of today's world problems. Uh, people opt for catch-all solutions and scalability before nuance and net positive impacts. And Rob talks about his uh, conversation with Michael Sandel, uh, the tyranny of meritocracy and, and so on. So. It's a very interesting debate about whether elite education has declined. You know, s- since the World War II days when, you know, the elites were literally enlisting in the war, and today the elites are seen as detached from uh, the, the average uh, Americans' concerns and worries, and they don't have skin in the game anymore. We also talk about podcasting and legacy uh, social media. And media is something I'm quite fascinated by, especially how it has evolved in the past few years. Uh, as you know, I'm a big fan of podcasting. It's open protocol, just like email or blogs. You know, you simply put it on an RSS feed and anybody can uh, listen to it. Uh, and, and podcasting has this incredible capacity to contain hours of uh, information and, and dialogue into something. So it, it allows you uh, to be able to prod things and see through people's logic processes. And you can sniff out the BS much better uh, than the short and sweet information delivery system, you know, like Twitter or mainstream media, which often paint a disingenuous representation of people's arguments. For example, I think uh, in the past year during COVID, a lot of the short form media from TV uh, to YouTube videos uh, to Twitter really reduced the dimensionality of the complexity of a lot of the experts' remarks. So. Later, when we look back at those experts' remarks, we say, oh, they were wrong here, they were wrong there. But if you really looked at what they actually said and how they reasoned through some of those processes, they weren't really wrong per se. It's just the room of error uh, has become smaller and also their uh, dimensionality, the complexity of their arguments have been reduced because of this common information delivery system. And I really see podcasting as somewhat of a last line of defense in all this. I also talk about the differences between long-form podcasting versus Clubhouse uh, versus Substack, uh, where I write a lot of my daily emails on about politics, about uh, financial markets, economics. I'm a big fan of Substack, but really not a big fan of Clubhouse, and uh, we talk about that. We also talk about the intellectual dark web and its associated voices, such as Eric Weinstein, Joe Rogan, you know, Lex Friedman, Sam Harris, Tim Dillon, Um, Intellectual dark web is really what I consider to be one of the most dominant counter-narrative cultural phenomena in today's media landscape. It's really fascinating. To be honest, Policy Punchline has never been narrative-driven. We don't have a predefined narrative that we hope to convey. Uh, We interview people across the ideological spectrum and if there's any narrative that we do have, it would be that we are counter-narrative and we want to examine Uh, why certain narratives are dominant in today's media landscape and how we should think about them. And that certainly includes uh, the intellectual dark web. It's also very interesting that uh, Eric Weinstein, who is one of the most prominent voices uh, in the intellectual dark web, he's actually a very good friend of Rob's. Uh, His wife, Pia Milani, actually leads the San Francisco office of INET, the Institute for New Economic Thinking. And um, Eric Weinstein also frequently cites uh, INET's work. So it's very, very interesting dynamic. As you can see, it's a very small world, so we talk about that relationship. We also talk about the fragility of today's media, social, and uh, cultural discourse. I, I would say that uh, a lot of the discussion was partly inspired by other conversations by other public intellectuals. Sam Harris and Andrew Sullivan did a very interesting podcast interview right before the 2020 election took place in which they said that the traditional legacy press had really discredited itself. Legacy media seemed clearly broken. It is one endless and incredibly boring recitation of prejudices and biases. There's a lack of intellectual diversity within their own ranks and it's constant pandering, abandoning any pretense of neutrality. So as you see, uh, people are not very happy with today's media landscape. Everything seems to be fragile. Uh, We're in a great asymmetry. Fox News needs not get anything right, whereas New York Times can't get anything wrong. Uh, Who caused this great media slant? Most in the media would clearly think it's because of Trump, it's because of Republican Party, uh, and they're somehow doing the right thing. Uh, But perhaps their knee-jerk reaction is also doing damage to discourse and to liberal democracy. Uh, I don't know, and that seems to be Uh, the view of a lot of people like Sam Harris. Um, So we don't really go too deep commenting on Harris and Sullivan's arguments. Uh, I only brought it up because at the end of the day I'm not really motivated to either prove that Trump isn't that bad or I'm trying to own the libs or anything. Uh, What is really fascinating to me is to explore the general fragility of our media landscape today, which is that we seem to be in this downward spiral. The overall media infrastructure and people's ways of processing information have become much more short and sweet and fragile and any slight deviation from this current trajectory seems to inevitably lead us to something much worse politically and socially but this current course also seems to be taking us somewhere bad and this is why i'm not very optimistic you could say and i would also say at the very end that this fragility also manifests itself in my own remarks Uh, As some of my close friends were helping me prep for my interview with Rob, one of them gave me a piece of advice, which is, uh, Tiger, it's not necessarily about what you say on the interview, but how exactly you say it. Uh, There are words and phrases and ideas, Tiger, that immediately trigger people to think the other way. So for example, uh, my friend said, Tiger, please do not bring up concepts such as cancel culture, because no matter what your argument actually is, people's mind Will immediately drift to think that you are right-wing or something upon hearing that phrase and your actual point would be lost and people would be more interested in labeling you or grouping you into some kind of faction that they agree or disagree rather than actually listening to the point but is this really the right way to think about this I mean what one ideally is supposed to do is that you try your best to make nuanced and thoughtful arguments and not resort to isolated incidents as the foundation for your arguments and you try to be open-minded and logical but that's kind of all one can do and one should do, right? And, but that's not really uh, what my friends are advising me. Uh, the fact that many of them were more concerned with the form and not the substance of my arguments really only points to the fragility of today's discourse. People lose patience. Any slight deviation, whether in form or substance, from what is perceived to be right will result in almost immediate banishment. This makes me feel even more strongly about the necessity of long-form podcasting, which really seeks to give a more nuanced view of of the thought processes during our conversation. But with that being said, uh, I still feel like I was probably not nuanced enough in many parts of my responses to Rob's questions in this following interview. I wish that I could have spent more time exploring certain details and making my logic more explicit. So I hope that you may graciously tolerate my rambling Uh, and give me the benefit of doubt when you listen through this interview. I also want to clarify that, you know, there is really not one set of narratives that I seek to firmly stand by and disseminate. I try very, very hard not to attach myself with layers of predefined identities, such as, you know, being a Democrat or Republican or a techno-optimist or techno-pessimist or so on. I think um, these labels would keep me from promptly updating my beliefs and exploring a wide range of ideas. After all, I am uh, an interviewer on Policy Punchline. I'm not really the, the respondent. Uh, so uh, I on one hand, I really hope to present you this interview that represents a lot of my thinking and my conversations with my friends and close colleagues. But on the other hand, I also want to let you know that this podcast is not about me because once a podcast is about me, it's no longer interesting and there's not really one set of narratives that I really try to uh, convey or, or, or sway you towards uh, I, I really hope that maybe in a few months uh, I will look back and disagree with some of my opinions today and I would take that as a sign of progress that I could keep an open mind and update my beliefs and after all I'm only a 22 year old and by putting this all out there very transparently I hope it makes my remarks in this interview less fragile than they could be So I want to thank you for all your support for Policy Punchline, for me personally. As always, you can find us on policypunchline.com. You may uh, feel free to reach out to me uh, on on tigergal.substack.com where I write my daily emails uh, on on politics and media and financial markets and economics. And that's a good way I keep in touch with my listeners and viewers. Thank you so much for uh, supporting us. And right now I present you the first part of my conversation with Rob Johnson on podcasting and the media landscape.
1: Say you can kill my body
0: But you know you can't met with my mind
1: Welcome to Economics and Beyond. I'm Rob Johnson, President of the Institute for New Economic Thinking. Say you can kill my body, yeah. say you kill my body But you know you can't met with my mind so know you can't kill my mind you know we'll go away, we're going to go away, come back, come back, come back, come back, my second time. I'm here today with a brilliant young man named Tiger Gao. He's a senior at Princeton. We met a couple of years ago when I was at the board meeting of the Julius Rabinovich Center at Princeton University, which where I went to graduate school, and he gave an interesting presentation about something called a podcast which I had that time not done. He runs Policy Punchline out of Princeton and explores all kinds of dimensions from the vantage point of young people who know that this world is still out in front of them. And how would I say, given how Rome appears to be burning right now, he's trying to figure (laughs) out what the next fire department's gonna look like. Tiger, thanks for joining me
0: today. And Mr. Johnson, thank you so much for having me. It's obviously a huge honor for me.
1: So when I look at the formation of INET, one of the things you know we start, we embarked on was engaging the debate with senior scholars and so forth. But we also commissioned a man named Perry Merling and Robert Skidelsky to analyze curriculum, analyze what people are being taught, and this matters very, very deeply because we're not just talking about convincing the experts about what the right models and truth are, we're talking about how the general public that just takes economics 101 or maybe two or three courses come to act as citizens based on their understanding of the role of these market institutions in that. So it's a much the, the education realm, what I'll call part of the outside game, and we'll talk about inside and outside games over and over today, but the outside game of broad awareness of the role of markets and what goals we've set for society and so forth is just as important as what the insiders believe, and particularly in this world, in the aftermath of Donald Trump, where expertise and authority and governance in all the surveys, the trust, and the faith in them has disintegrated. And part of what we've got to do is figure out what's wrong, and there's no better place to start than with a creative man like <laughs> yourself that's right in the belly of the beast right now at Princeton. What and uh, what what are you seeing? You you had mentioned to me in the prelude that you'd gone to St. Paul's High School in New England, yes, another very I went to a boarding prestigious <laughs> institution. Yeah, and then yes. you came to uh, to, to Princeton, Princeton and uh, you're you're. I would I say? Uh, engaged in lots of worlds with your own podcast, and that. What, what does it feel like? What does economics feel like? What? Where is your curiosity at this juncture? What What Absolutely. do you wish was in the curriculum that's not there, and what is it that you rejoice that you have learned?
0: Yes, uh, very big uh, questions, <laughs> uh, Mr. Johnson. To, to start us off with, I, I think um, as you. Uh, sort of mentioned, Uh, I went to a private boarding school and now I'm at Princeton. So the the past uh, seven, eight years of my life, I've just been very fortunate to to kind of be at the center of of world's knowledge, getting the best uh, education. Uh, But I think part of me also realized in that process that titles don't really matter. It's in in some way almost feels like a hollowing success. I mean, these are very uh, traditionally defined, uh, elitist, uh, quality education paths, but I didn't find the kind of exciting intellectual fulfillment that I had been looking for. Right? I've obviously done very well for myself, but I think in this typical path, I didn't find the intellectual conversation that, that I wanted. So so I had to largely forge my own path and I it needed a kind of an entrepreneurial spirit to find and build my own ecosystems rather than relying on others and that's how Policy Punchline, which is my podcast, uh, came to being. I, I was a sophomore at Princeton two and a half years ago and I was very dissatisfied with the, the kind of the extracurricular activities that are being presented here. You either join a business club or a consulting club or an investment club and or, or an entrepreneurship club. Uh, but my, my biggest passion back then was to go to talks, afternoon talks, lunch talks, given by economists, scientists, philosophers. And uh, I realized that very few students go to those talks and very few students go up to those professors or scholars or visitors afterwards to ask them questions and engage with them. So that's when the idea popped into my head. Why not start a podcast? And back then it was also kind of a new thing. And podcast as a medium, which we can go into later, has this wonderful quality of allowing one to have long form dialogues, long form conversations during which you really get to develop a connection with with your interviewee uh, and uh, I've just been so fortunate to, to have uh, received so many yeses uh, from the cold emails I sent to so by this point over the past two years we've done more than hundred uh, and twenty interviews and ranging from uh, economics uh, to uh, policy to uh, politics to Uh, fundamental sciences, energy, all kinds of topics. And I I guess just to name drop a little bit, uh, maybe in economic policy, we had Austin Goolsbee, who was the former White House Chair of Council of Economic Advisors. We had uh, Bill Dudley, former New York Fed President. Uh, In in, in politics, we had uh, Trey Gowdy, who was uh, (laughs) recently... uh, Uh, We had him very recently for our elections coverage, and he was seen as the as the uh, the head of the Tea Party and and chair of the House Oversight Benghazi committees. Uh, Dave Wasserman, uh, who is uh, a very famous election forecaster, uh, ranked, you know, top one or two alongside with Nate Silver. Jim Van who is the CEO of the media company Axios Uh, in, in, in sciences, we had Robert Langer very recently. Uh, who, who is an MIT professor and also the, the co-founder of Moderna and, and uh, the most cited engineer in human history. So I, I won't go on with the list, but uh, as you can see, we've just been very fortunate that people are willing to sit down for an hour, two hours with us to, to talk. And it's just been such an intellectually fulfilling experience to be able to Uh, engage in those types of conversations. And I think it's been life transforming for myself and for a lot of our team members to to be able to engage in those dialogues uh, in addition to uh, the the, the classes that we're taking at Princeton.
1: Now that uh, curious listener can go to your website. Is it policypunchline.org or what's the... uh
0: yes uh so so you may find us on dot com, and we are on itunes .com. spotify stitcher yes uh, uh, uh youtube y- if you go if you google us you'll you'll find us and you can find us on any uh uh platform you you usually go to
1: excellent excellent well i i always think about uh, people like yourself bright people at a place like princeton and it How would I say? Because of your own vitality and intellect, what you've already proven, what you're in the process of creating. There's a lot to be optimistic about. But at this point in time, I'll make a silly metaphor, but it's like being the guy that could do the most push-ups on the deck of the Titanic. Uh, We got to save this ship. And the question (laughs) is, (laughs) are we experiencing too much comfort inside the cocoon of elite institutions. You talked about the kind of clubs everybody's joining. Are we experiencing what you might call branded development in the narrow contours of a highly unequal society to stay in that top tier? Or are we exploring the unsustainability in relation to social issues, climate, etc.? in a way that allows you to navigate as a leader with a, you might call, heart-filled perspective that might heal this, this very wounded beast called the United States of America.
0: I guess, Mr. Johnson, part of your question is really asking me whether you think the quote-unquote elite education today in a place like Princeton or any other Ivy League institutions, whether it's doing its its job cultivating the next generation of leaders and what and what those students are thinking about on a day-to-day basis, and uh, I I whenever I talk to professors, they always say uh, I have hope for, for our society, and I'm very optimistic. Whenever I talk to young people, <laughs> because the young people se- seem to be doing so many exciting things, and, and uh, the cynical part of me and and pessimistic side of, part of me. Kind of sees the other other part. I, I would say that a lot of Princeton students around me are dissatisfied with, with uh, the kind of uh, c- culture uh, or, or discourse that is happening on, on campus. They, they, everybody seems to be believing that we are in, in a somewhat dangerous intellectual thought bubble. Uh, and, and not saying there's anything wrong with it, it's just that uh, obviously there's a tendency that most of us are, are liberal, most of us are progressive most of us came from a certain background, and uh, because people are mimetic, because people um, are, are under certain social pressures, or they all take the same kind of classes and read the same news sources, obviously, it is much, you have a tendency for people's opinions to, to converge. And not just opinions, but also ideologies and the way they, they look at the system. So whenever I, t- I talk to Princeton students, and, and then I go talk to I guess, a, a Silicon Valley banker or an investor, I, I feel like they're in completely different roles. And if you go talk to a Midwest farmer, someone in the working class, uh, you feel like you're also in a completely different shared reality because the Silicon Valley people are thinking about techno-optimism. They have their own uh, a set of bubbles, per, per se, and, and likewise with other people. So we seem to be in very different pockets of, of shared realities these days and and uh, we we can obviously dive in into uh the, the kinds of thought bubbles in, in uh, e- elite elite circles or or education but but i do recognize i think there is some kind of a mindset opportunity cause because um people people the direct incentives for young people today a lot of times is is to pursue what is seen to be sexy by other peers, right? You want to start some startup as an entrepreneur, be be on the list of Forbes 30 under 30, uh, get a great paying job and you're incentivized to do so because um, if you hyper optimize your time at Princeton to find a good comforting job, you will be able to really achieve that. Uh, And and part of my worry is whether students are actually incentivized to work on the hard problems and, and, and tackle uh, complex issues and struggle through a lot of things. I mean, it, it's largely a much difficult path for someone to, to, for example, apply to PhD programs and pursue the academic route, route uh, or or carve out their own path to do something else. Um, so so I think uh, there is a sense of naivete and, and lack of understanding of the kind of complexities of our world's problems. I I, I do see how uh, young people have a tendency to, to say it's all the boomers' fault and we just have to do this, 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 and then uh, you know, elect Bernie or whatever, and then the world's problems would be, <laughs> would be solved. And, and, and I think um, I, I'm, I'm kind of going off all, all kinds of tangents that we can gradually converge here. Uh, but, but I guess uh, uh, the last thing I, I would say... Well, we uh, build,
1: build the mosaic and then we'll organize it afterwards. <laughs> this is great. This is great. <laughs> uh,
0: I, I think the last thing I would say is, is I probably do see a, a slight decline in quote-unquote elite education in general. Uh, and, and I haven't lived through history for a very long time, so maybe, this is, maybe I'm idealizing people in the back in the old days, but I still remember people telling me back in the 1940s or, or something, uh, the entire class of my high school, St. Paul School, the entire class enlisted in the military to fight the World War II. I mean, th- this kind of endeavor is very unthinkable uh, today. It, it seems that uh, the, the, the students today in those elite institutions are increasingly disconnected uh, from, from the rest of the, uh, the society because of many secular trends, inequality, wealth inequality, technological transformation, not, not of their own faults per se, not that they don't want to get to understand the real world, but, but it seems that the disconnect has, has widened on, on one hand. On the other hand, it seems that people's critique, I mean, from uh, people like uh, Nassim Nicholas Taleb and many other intellectuals, they, they say that elites don't have skin the game anymore, right? So if you think about a, a typical Ivy League graduate who ended up going to the State Department or work at the Federal Reserve, a lot of times they don't actually have the skin in the game to craft the best kind of policies uh, and, and you end up uh, crafting very disastrous policies that you think are, are good for, for society. And, and sometimes I, I recognize that because we as Princeton students are very good at justifying whatever we believe in. And sometimes uh, it is very easy for us to think that we are in the right because we're more knowledgeable, we, we, have, we're, we are the most educated, and we see the other side as not uh, worthy to be engaged in, or, or that they're simply wrong, where we are morally better. Right? So if you deny climate change, I just won't engage with you. If you don't agree with this movement or, or, or this kind of perspective, it must be that you're ignorant or that you read misinformation. And I certainly don't do that because I am at Princeton. That, that seems to be a somewhat... Prevalent case, but but you see a great cognitive dissonance in some way because people say those things students say those things uh, But but again, as I previously said the immediate incentive is not for them to actually work on hard problems So they end up really thinking about big issues and trying to tackle complex issues, but they don't actually end up doing so Uh, not of their fault of their own per se, but but I do think there, there is some kind of sense that, that the elite education is in decline today for, for many reasons. Uh, but but I've, I've really rambled on a, a while, so...
1: <laughs> well, no, this is important because, you know, you know, I've done a lot of work with Michael Sandel in uh, his most recent book, The Tyranny of Merit, gets at some of these issues, the issues between what you might call education versus credentializing and what is going on inside the schools. Secondly, the despair of those other people who don't have the elite pedigree and their trust in elites. Their view, the, what you might call the healthy romantic view was one gets an education, develops great gifts or skills, cultivates your gifts, latter pattern recognition, become aware of more facets and aspects of society, and then in, a, in an elite role in governance, one can uh, be more sensitive and help the design evolve, and that's a noble calling. On the other side is viewed like after the Vietnam War, David Halberstam, the best and the brightest. These guys made a huge mistake with Vietnam and they justified it and justified it, spent billions and billions of dollars at that time, which would be trillions now, did a lot of harm to people psychologically and everything else, killed a lot of people. I mean Martin Luther King towards the end of his life, one year to the day before he died, gave a speech at Riverside Church called Beyond Vietnam, a time to break the silence. And so you have different phases in different periods, but I think we're in one right now. As you, I don't know whether it's the decline of education or the decline outward in the faith in elites that that education is being used for public purpose, as opposed to what I'll call private credentialization, material gain and other things. But it's a very, very challenging time. And, you know, I'm a white male who went to MIT in Princeton, worked in the financial sector. I can be accused by people on the outside frequently of being part of that elite circle. I try to hear that criticism, but if it hurts, kind of a natural, what I'll call brain science reaction is to be self-protective. When people try to shame you, you become more self-protective. It's hard to open up when people are throwing flames at you and you're in an earlier phase, but just what you might call those credentials in one corner of the room are celebrated and down the street they're burning a scarecrow with your name on it. And uh, it's just a hard, it's a very hard time. And I guess the question is what got you to reach outside of your academic realm explore the podcast explore other forms of media you've talked to me about substack you've talked to me about this new one clubhouse various ways of augmenting your awareness and your insights and in what and defining what matters tell me tell me a little bit like where when did you what was the seed of your decision to form a podcast and then explore these other realms.
0: Yes, perhaps one uh, detail I didn't mention at the beginning when I was talking about it it seemed like I was just going on a rant about my my peers, but I I wasn't trying to. But I I guess one issue I I found and I'm quite skeptical myself about my own learning is that uh, it's very hard for me to know. whether the beliefs I have are the quote-unquote right rights set of beliefs. So, so for example, um, during, uh, during all the turmoil ha- that has happened over, over the past year, uh, a lot of my friends took actions, they, 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 they want to do something good, and they post Instagram stories, or they forward articles, uh, and, and then try to s- spread positive causes. And I think that's all good, but, but in some way, these are also simple statistics, a lot of times naïve empiricisms. A lot of these sources of information that we have uh, uh, are not conducive to actually understanding the matter in, in a primary source based uh, original way. Right? It's, in other words, it's, it's very hard to read New York Times and really explore the truth. It's kind of a survey of, of the kinds of opinions out there, but a lot of those uh, articles were reports are certainly narrative driven they, they they have all kinds of their own biases maybe they're not written by experts uh, so part of my own dissatisfaction was that I wasn't sure whether the beliefs that I held whether uh, what the, the sources of information I had were correct and and I think podcasting was the best way the, that I could think about and and I would even say it's probably the last line of defense in today's media landscape uh, to to really explore that I mean I mean I, I guess Maybe we can talk a little bit more about what what attracts me so much about podcasts. I mean, technically, on, from a technical aspect, it, it's open protocol. It's like an email or a blog. You you just put the podcast on an RSS feed. Any app can can receive that feed, so it's not really published onto a specific platform or a system. It's not censored or controlled by any aggregator like Instagram. So so the platforms can't really censor it, and and you have this flourishment of, of ideas. That's why we have podcasts about anything, and. and it's very easy to set up. Anybody can do this. And, and, and it's such a huge contrast to the common information delivery system these days, because the common information delivery systems these days are all short and sweet the mainstream news, social media, Twitter. Uh, and, and these are very easy to paint disingenuous representations of people's arguments, right? When you are trying to reduce Dr. Fauci's arguments into a two minute clip, of course, people are going to find conflicting clips of, of two minutes and, and then contradict him. Uh, but, but a lot of times, it's not what he's saying. The, the, the nuanced arguments are much more complex. So, so it, it made me realize that it's very easy to package narratives into something short and sweet, but in long-form discussions, you can really sniff, off, s- sniff out uh, the BS, right? So uh, by, by prodding it, by questioning it, by, by challenging our guests, I can actually explore the issue, and it allows me to see their logical processes and fallacies, uh, because it's much easier to BS for five minutes, then for three hours, and if I can have a two-hour conversation with someone, I can really explore uh, the, the issue. And and I think that goes back to my journey doing policy punchline and what what our mission is. We're we're not narrative driven. or at least we, we try not to be. We we don't have a predefined view. I mean we we're, we're not liberal or conservative. We're not partisan. Uh, we don't try to uh, interview people of a certain political spectrum. We actually. I mean, just to give you an example, during this election season, we interviewed someone like David Pakman, who is a very famous, you know, leftist YouTube influencer. And we also interviewed someone like Robert Barnes, who is, uh, proclaims himself to be a constitutional populist and is the lawyer for Alex Jones and the Covington kid. So, so we try to explore those issues very broadly and widely, and we don't have a predefined narrative Uh, And and hopefully, and by the way, I would say a lot of podcasts out there do have a predefined narrative that they're trying to uh, propagandize or or, or spread to people. And we we try to be as truth-seeking as possible. Uh, And and I guess my concluding thought is is, is, our our cultural, social, and political discourse these days seem to be very fragile. And and we can talk about this fragility later. Uh, it, It seems to me that because you have dramatically reduced people's Attention spans, because social media has made uh, the 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 profit structure to be fundamentally about clickbaity or or, or reducing them to sound bites. Uh, likewise, with legacy media, that uh, the the fundamental business model of the cr- traditional information delivery infrastructure was not aligned uh, w- w- with what is in the best interest of people's knowledge formation. Uh, and I think podcasting is in some way the last line of defense. I mean, usually books would do that in terms of giving you some long form content, but, but books don't comment on day to day news activities and, and, and current events. So, so the, kind of the best way for me to learn these days is just to listen to podcasts. Uh, and, and I think uh, hopefully you and I can also experience this today, which is podcasting is not really about me preaching a certain ideal, but rather we can come to a neut- mutual understanding of truth uh, or, or, or some approximation of, of what we see to be truth. Uh, And and that is what I see as as the beauty of podcasts and what incentivized me to to really do it is this inner questioning uh, of whether the stuff I am believing in, the the stuff that so many people around me believe in, or whether they are actually correct. And and perhaps I will eventually uh, reach the same conclusion. But I think the process of you reaching that same conclusion uh, uh, should be much more complex than reading it off of an Instagram post or a Facebook article.
1: Well, you had mentioned to me in our uh, preparatory conversations that you had been very uh, influenced by a group that they refer to as the intellectual dark web. And obviously one of the maestros in the podcasting world, Joe Rogan, has <laughs> also been a, a big influence. But describe how did they get under your skin? What, what did you learn from exploring the terrain that they cover? Sam Harris, Eric Weinstein, whose wife, Pia Milani, works with me at INET running our San Francisco operation and various others, Jordan Peterson and others. What what did that bring to the table for you?
0: Yes, Um, I I would say if there's any quote unquote narrative that the policy punchline where myself is really trying to convey sometimes is that we are counter narrative is that we see what is happening in the media landscape these days. And then we ask the question, uh, why is this happening? Why are people talking about this? Uh, why do people suddenly all believe in this? And, and how can I refine my understanding about that and, and examine that from a somewhat external perspective? And, and I think that's what you know the quote-unquote intellectual dark web has done in the past couple of years, which is, which is that they saw the legacy media, they saw uh, the, the political... Discourse and debates between the, the dichotomy of uh, Democrats versus Republicans. They saw all of this and they re- really don't like it. And, and, and they're not right wing per se, even though some of them might have a slightly conservative bent uh, or, or libertarian bent. Uh, but, but it seems that th- there's this kind of uh, reactionary, sort of, we don't like what is currently being preached to us type of uh, underlying current. Uh, in, in this movement. And it is, uh, so I, I've been following a lot of those long-form podcasting and th- these people are sort of the best long-form podcasters out there, as, as you mentioned, Joe Rogan, uh, Eric Weinstein, Sam Harris, uh, I would probably over even add uh, Lex Friedman, who, who probably does s- something more science related, but uh, he is also engaging more in the, in the cultural discourse these days. Uh, and, and, and these people, it's very interesting. I don't agree with everything they say, and I think it's, it's been, uh, my, I, my, my thoughts on a lot of those issues shift back and forth, but because they do those podcasts the last four hours every time, you know, like what Eric Weinstein does, it, it's just been a very interesting experience uh, to, to listen through their logical and thought processes and, and see this cultural phenomenon in, in today's uh, media, media landscape, I would say.
1: Yeah. Well, I, uh, in recent days, had listened to a Sam Harris podcast uh, it's called The Divided Mind, and it's about a, a writer and a book, a man named Ian McGilchrist. And his book is called The Master and the Emissary, and it's about left versus right brain process. And that, in many ways, the master is the right brain in his way of seeing things. Uh, Canadian broadcasting company, CBC, made a beautiful documentary about it. And Ian and, uh, and Sam explored for a couple of hours. And uh, I had read the Gilchrist book uh, maybe two years ago. A gentleman named Lawrence Freeman, who's a Benedictine monk and uh, teaches meditation, told me he thought I would be interested. I thought the book was fascinating. But to see it on that podcast, it, it sort of validates your perspective about what you might call some of the deep dives and curiosity that that group is able to uh, bring to the table in this new format we call the podcast. And, uh, and I, I, I yeah. enjoyed it tremendously. And, and, and by uh, the way, I
0: I, I I was listening to uh, Sam Harris. It was really interesting that he was saying, uh, please st- stop calling me that I'm part of the intellectual dark web. <laughs> I, I think no, at no. one point, because, because he was saying that uh, he... he He is himself and and he does not like to be sort of grouped under one big structure and be critiqued under one big structure. And he was not happy to see some members of the intellectual dark web uh, taking Trump's uh, lawsuits, election lawsuits more seriously than they deserve to be. And and he was quite unhappy. So so I think Sam Harris probably also stands in in this part, which is he doesn't like the political correctness. He doesn't like what he's seeing with New York Times or the legacy media or the Democratic Party. But he's saying, but wait a second, it's not like I'm pro-Trump or pro-Republican Party. I mean, there are probably even worse things on the right side. Yeah. (laughs) yeah, He's not an
1: advocate, he's an explorer. And that's quite healthy, I think. And I watched, uh, or I listened to his podcast after the January 6th episode in the Capitol. And he had lots of criticisms for all sides about what was happening and who was... Using it for other agendas as, uh, that he didn't think was accurate, it was really quite a quite an extraordinary episode and a courageous episode. I had, I admired how what you might call he stepped out in front of the speeding truck on both left and right sides of those arguments, uh, and uh, I found it refreshing. And uh, what uh, what other things do you uh, find? as inspiration. Some people are interested in poetry. Others are interested in you know, deep dives in psychology. People like Jonathan Haidt uh, and his most recent book, The Coddling of the American Mind, about the influence of some of these coercive tactics. Tristan Harris and others made a film about, uh, what do we call it, the social dilemma, on, on how the electronic technology is affecting us. And as was said towards the end, how it's fomenting a civil war because to keep their advertising budget, everybody's getting positive reinforcement for their priors and it's bifurcating society into two vehement teams. So there, there's a lot of stimulus out there. And I'm just curious, what have been some of the, the high points? What would you put in your, your hall of fame of the things that have changed your perception here in the last two to three years?
0: Uh, I, I would say uh, podcasting is probably the, the most significant because that's also where I derive uh, a lot of my day-to-day information I, from From all those thinkers. So uh, honestly, some of the people we, we've listed before, along with other podcasters, sort of more uh, traditional, like Ezra Klein, a, a lot of those people influence my thinking in many ways. Outside of podcasting, I would say which we can go into a little bit later, is is my own experience uh, interaction with economics. I'm fascinated by the subject. I'm an economics major. I I love the field and economic debates. I read uh, dozens of economics books every year. I I really love the kind of debates that are happening in financial markets, in economics academia, and I personally struggled a lot in the past year or two uh, thinking whether I should apply for economics PhD programs. Uh, and, and last fall, I, I went through a very long process applying to uh, research positions uh, and, and grad school, uh, and, and I ended up coming out of it, deciding not to do it, and, and, and which which is a big formative experience on, on that end. Uh, and, and I think on, that, on the other hand, I think my interactions with my peers really shaped me a lot. I mean, especially given all the social turmoil, uh, COVID, Black Lives Matter, and then the election season. I mean, the past year in 2020 uh, shaped me in, in, in such a profound way because you see how uh, thoughts start to diverge uh, students have become more politically activated and, and and their thoughts diverge and as you clash with people and debate with people, uh, you, you also become more mature. you also derive a lot of uh, intellectual fulfillment out of those connections and debates and, and, and it 's fascinating to see um, how how princeton students and and my friends from other institutions um, come out of those processes. Uh, critiquing the world, critiquing things. And I think that, that gave me a, a huge boost as well. And, and also, I guess the last thing I would touch on, which is something we talked about last time we saw each other in person, is meditation and, and, and yoga and uh, that side of things. I mean, I, I spent three, three, three months, three weeks, actually. I, I keep <laughs> screwing up the scale. Uh, I, I spent three weeks in India last winter, the winter before COVID hit. Uh, and, and I was on this yoga meditation trip that Princeton uh, took us on. Uh, and I had a sort of a great philosophical and spiritual experience uh, interacting with some of the monks there and, and learning uh, stuff about Hinduism and also uh, practicing meditation myself. So, so I think that, that part of uh, component also shaped me a, a decent amount. So these were probably the, some of the major influences that would come to my mind. Uh, yes. That's fascinating.
1: That's, that's amazing. The uh, people in India, all, all of the Sri Ramana Mar- Marishi and uh, there's a gentleman, he wrote a book, he's a French thinker, he wrote a book called such Chit Ananda, and he was trying to reconcile the monotheism of his training as a French Catholic clergyman with the polytheistic vision of gods and try to understand how to, how to how do they say, fuse them so that it wasn't one was right, the other was wrong. There are, there's a lot, of, a, lot of, a lot to explore there and a lot to explore. I remember when the, uh, I read a book recently called The Gospel According to the Beatles. And it was about how the Beatles were kids, like working class kids in Liverpool. And as they started to catch fire, what they refer to as Beatlemania, was almost like religious devotion, like they were witch doctors or shamans or something. And the fascinating thing was that the Beatles didn't understand where this was coming from. So they went exploring. George Harrison and John Lennon were more at the vanguard of that. Ringo went along because he was a good fellow and Paul McCartney was a bit the anchor. But they ended up all four in India for an extended period of time. Uh, they explored the use of psychedelic drugs and other things to try to understand where did all this energy come from and uh, it's it's really it's fascinating to see how those Eastern philosophical disciplines have influenced the culture of the United States there was an Englishman named Alan Watts who was a uh, London-born, I think, or, or English-born, London-based for a while, who moved to Northern California, dealt with all the beat poets, and became an interpreter of Eastern philosophy and Zen Buddhism and what have you, uh, and was very influential in particularly Northern California when you had that that counterculture '60s uh, before it became called what I'll call New Age. And, uh, and seemingly uh, engaged in political reform, it was at the time people like Jack Kerouac were writing and others. And it, it's fascinating to me to hear that you had the, what you might call it, inclination, the intuition to go explore in that realm at this juncture. I find that encouraging. <laughs>
0: Uh, I, I would say it's probably because uh, I consume too much media <laughs> the, the, <laughs> these days. I'm very uh, deeply ingrained in the, in the discourse today. Uh, there's so much information and, and, and stuff uh, flowing through my brain every day. As, as we uh, talked about right before the interview, people are going crazy these days, and they're trying to put out the fire in their brain. So, so we're seeing this rise of meditation and, and so on. And, and, and obviously, I think being at Princeton was... Has always been a very high-stressed environment. Uh, I'm always doing research, taking classes, uh, running the podcast, you and, know, and, and just just so much going on. And, and there's constantly more more s- s- stimulants coming in uh, from all sides in terms of I- political ideologies or new new economic ideas. Uh, and, and and sometimes I I do find myself uh, feeling the need to calm down. So yeah,
1: well, when we uh, started Inet back in 2010, April, there was a gentleman who had been a friend of mine who'd been an Italian economic and finance minister named Tommaso Schioppa, and he gave the last talk at the first conference in Cambridge, England. And he said, I think that INET has to focus on three things. Financial sustainability, and that's what this crisis has brought to a head, meaning the great financial crisis of 2008 9. Second, resource sustainability, and it relates to climate issues and rapport with the environment and with Mother Nature. And then the third was what he called social sustainability. And then he finished his speech and he sat down, by the way, he later wrote it up as one of the Pierre Jacobson lectures that you can find online uh, just before he passed away. But about two months after he gave the speech at INET, he, he put it in writing so that our listeners and your friends can, can, I'll send you a copy. But he was talking about how the breakdown, in finance, given the prestige of finance, was going to rattle people, was going to take people to a place of great uh, discord, and the trust between government and markets would come under pressure. And then when he sat down, he said, I didn't say this on stage Robert, but all of this is going to feed back into social unsustainability, and when I listened to you just moments ago talking about your trip to India, what I could sense was a prescience, like you were a seer, because you went there before the pandemic. It wasn't <laughs> yes. after we're all in isolation and, and like you said, our brains were burning. Yeah, you, you you could see it coming, you could sense it coming. I won't say <laughs> see it, but sense it, and yeah. I think that's fascinating. I think. Uh, I I I'm, I admire your humility and your curiosity at the same time. I think that's a really uh, a nice combination. Well well let's start with your perspective on things like Clubhouse, Substack and what how would I say what you think is the wheat and the chaff of quality media at this juncture in time.
0: I uh, I in my in my uh, earlier response when I was talking about podcasting I, I... Obviously, I guess, uh, talk too much about uh, the contrast between podcasting and some of the new rising media forms. And I I think Clubhouse may be a a very good one because a lot of people in Silicon Valley these days are talking about Clubhouse. And if you haven't heard about it, it's it's this uh, audio-only app. You drop in to listen to famous people talking to each other, debating each other, and you can raise your hand and try to participate. And, and, And Mr. Johnson, I saw you on Clubhouse. Uh, Two weeks ago, when Eric Weinstein got you on, I I was there for your very first conversation. Uh, (laughs) Yes, well,
1: there's a a woman that I used to work with in the music business named Susan Piver, who is a meditation teacher and and a really, really quite brilliant uh, person on spiritual concerns. And she said she was going on Clubhouse to do a meditation thing was I interested and I looked at it and then Eric called me and I loaded it up and got on and, and then he uh introduced me and we had a talk with I can't remember several hundred people
0: yeah for just yeah, a few like minutes a that you people, apparently
1: yeah. were a part of yeah and
0: and, and it's really funny that Eric Weinstein was saying uh uh, I, I wanted to join uh, Rob because uh, whenever I join, I always bring a lot, <laughs> I bring a lot of traffic with, with me. So he was like, I want people to yes. follow you, <laughs> yes. it, was, it was quite funny, yes. but uh, the Clubhouse somehow just became this new uh, thing and I, and I wrote about it in my Substack ladder and I, and I went on a rant and I, I was been talking to my, a lot of my friends because a lot of uh, people in the uh, VC entrepreneurship community are in it and, and so are a lot of Princeton kids. And I, I have to say, I don't really like it. I don't know how you feel about this new media form because it seems to me that a lot of people compare it with podcasting. But I think the equivalence is very false because for podcasting you need some level of preparation. I mean, it's it's slightly more formal. The information density is much higher. Um, sh- sure, the technological barrier may be very low. You just need a mic, but but you have to, You either have to have to say. You either have to have things to say yourself, or you need to be able to get guests on the show to talk with you. And and I, it seems to me that at least for me, in order for me to prepare this conversation with you, I had to spend you know many many hours. Whereas for Clubhouse, I feel like it's a much more casual thing, uh, that that essentially giving a lot of people more people uh, to to talk without needing to be thoughtful, which which means if you are some. Uh, the mid-level management consultant or marketing director at some some startup, you, you now have the platform to just ramble on for many hours and, and getting praised by other people. And you're adding a lot of noises. And I, I the, the main thing I wanted to say, tying back to what you were saying about Susan Piver and, and meditation, is that it seems that Clubhouse is really the exact opposite of meditation, what we need in society because people's whole thing about Clubhouse is that if you're brushing your teeth or if you have five minutes uh, you don't know what to do right now uh, why not just enter Clubhouse and jump in a conversation but if you really think about it, that, that, that sounds horrible because you, your mind is going crazy, you feel incredibly unproductive you, you feel like you're, you're not learning as much as you could and you have to open you know, 30 tabs on your Chrome browser where going to Clubhouse all the time, you have to multitask and that just seemed to me as, as exactly the opposite of what the society needs right now. Uh, and it's just adding so much noise to the discourse. Uh, and and uh, I, I, I see it as very, not not something that good. It is probably not going to last very long. I don't know. I, Eric Weinstein spends like 15 hours a day on this. So I, w- I wanted to hear your thoughts on this.
1: <laughs> well, my my thoughts are, not, I don't have a lot of experience. One or two times that I've been on, uh, and the only time of any duration is the one that you mentioned. <laughs> yeah. uh, but, but I see the advantages for someone who does not have a big footprint in the media already established that they can reach a lot of people quickly. I think you're right that instead of a more thoughtful, planned uh, experience, it's an improvisational experience. And it's therefore likely to have which might call no, more noise and related to the, in the, to the signal. And so in that respect, I, I don't know if one uh, will allocate their time in the realm of quality control to a lot of clubhouse relative to other forms of expression or, or, or learning. Being in the audience in clubhouse may turn you on to some people you never thought about or never knew of that are interesting. And it's in that sense of, of value, but how much time do you have to hang out and go fishing for right. interesting people you never heard of? I don't know. I don't know. It, I think it, it also it,
0: it seems to be literally the definition of echo chambers, right? You have those little rooms, and you have mm, people, mm. your moderators, and you, 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 the, the, everybody kind of pats themselves on the back, and that. that I mean, I, I don't think there's anything wrong with that per se. It's just. Uh, you kind of have to recognize... It's really funny. There's a comedian, I don't know if you've heard of him, Tim Dillon. He's a very f- famous comedian these days, uh, associate with Joe Rogan and Eric Weinstein. They, they all did a session together. And, and, and Tim Dillon was making fun of him, he's saying, why are you letting Silicon Valley people talk to each other? I mean, you already own everything and enslave cool. us. Like, <laughs> Wall, Wall Street people never talked. They they never bragged yeah. about how they're screwing people over. Like, yeah, why are you letting... Uh, so, so it seemed to me that, that there, there's... The, the greater point I was trying to make is is that Silicon Valley or a lot of entrepreneurs today, they seem to be in their own little thought bubble, and and this ties back to our discussion about elites, yeah. which is really well, they they really have a sh- shared worldview and they keep reinforcing it, right? And yeah. and and, well, and, and well, this is not getting it out, yeah.
1: Yeah, well, it'll be interesting to see how it unfolds, but I'm I'll be, I'm a little bit more curious now, in light of how you're expressing. There's a music uh, blogger, writer. He has a show on SiriusXM named Bob Lefsitz. And Bob has been saying he's not finding Clubhouse very nourishing in the same way that you are. Tell me about Substack. I know I, I subscribe to people like David Sirota and Matt Taibbi and a handful of others through that medium. But tell me, what what is Substack doing for us?
0: <laughs> uh, Mr. Johnson, I would, I would also uh, have a quick plug. I would recommend you to subscribe to my <laughs> <laughs> a newsletter that I sometimes I, I, I send. So okay, I, I'll
1: do that. I'll do
0: that for sure. You can find me at tigergal.substack.com. But I mean, I, I started sending emails to uh, my team uh, many, many months ago. I mean, it was just whenever I hear something interesting around me or I stumbled upon a new finance chart or I talked to some people like you who gave me some new fresh ideas, I sent it to my team. So I have a small list, listserv of like 30 kids on my, on my podcast team. Uh, and then it gradually grew. I started bringing in my close friends and then they started bringing in their close friends and then uh, I, one day Clubhouse kind of happened and and, and people were saying uh, why not sort of uh, just why, why not just put this online and, and make it a, more of a a public thing so that this archive that people can go through and, and 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 I really think Clubhouse is doing tons of good for our society in, in some way because the whole business model behind Clubhouse is that they send newsletters and, and emails are just like podcasts. It's open protocol. Anybody can subscribe. There's no way you censor it. Anybody, if you get on someone's email list, they can just email you. And, and there are a lot of independent uh, journalists, as you, some of you, uh, you mentioned, and also there are others like Matt Iglesias who quit Vox uh, to, to start a Substack account. And there's uh, Glenn Greenwald. And many other people. Adam Two's now has a, has a Substack. A lot of people are getting on. Um, famous bloggers like a- a- Astro, Code, 10X. A lot of people in, in all kinds of different intellectual circles, and they write those either long form or short form uh, articles, and they can monetize them because subscribers can pay, and there's no paywall. So, so it, it, I think this is the kind of direction that society kind of our society kind of needs, rather than Clubhouse, because uh, it's more open protocol. You don't see a Clear hierarchical caste system, you know, like you do on, on Clubhouse, where you are not able to speak. You can uh, ha- have more open protocol, uh, decentralized mechanism of de- de- disseminating more thoughtful information, uh, and, and I and I see that as a largely much more constructive way uh, of disseminating information ra- rather than uh, the, the previous one. Hmm. Um, Interesting.
1: I'll have to, uh, I say, deepen my <laughs> dive there. Uh,
0: <laughs> these are some of the, the media consumption things that I've, that's been on my mind uh, these days, especially uh, in, in contrast to, to podcasting. Um, yeah, uh, but, but I guess you, you, were, you were talking about the fragility of the uh, media disc- discourse. Uh,
1: the media in some places is viewed as marketing for their advertisers or censoring for their advertisers. And so some of the uh, suspicion of experts and institutions and powerful people and all that is coupled with suspicion about the media, that the media isn't like a magnifying glass, it's like a lens that refracts what you see or what you're allowed to see. It's a, it's altering or sculpting what perceptions you're allowed to see. It's a gatekeeper. And I think some could say in a wholesome way, that's quality control relative to some of what happens in social media. And others would say, oh, it's an agenda. You know, they're pro-Palestine, they're pro-Israel, they're this, they're that, they're pro-banking. They don't criticize the fossil fuel industry because they get donations. So there is a, a fragility to which I might call confidence in the media because everybody is so cynical now about what what how does this channel that's sending something to me get paid and what are its incentives and how does that affect their judgment and I think that creates uh, an obstacle to the healing of trust that you and I have talked about throughout this conversation.
0: Mr. Johnson, it seems to me that there's a positive feedback loop going downhill. I, I, I don't know if you have any any sense, but, but it seems that... Uh, well, I, I was interviewing Dave Wasserman, who is a, the very, a very famous election forecaster, and he was saying, uh, quoting Nate Silver, who is another election forecaster, that... that uh, whenever society sees great technological transformations, especially pertaining to the technology of dissemination of technolo- uh, of information, uh, peace ha- becomes very hard to be maintained. It, because charlatans can eat more easily spread misinformation. And I think that's kind of what we saw with the rise of Twitter and social media. It became easier to spread misinformation and people were receptive to them because they already had some kind of skepticism, as you said, towards the experts and legacy media. And the legacy me- media felt this knee-jerk kind of reaction uh, to say, American voters or those people are very fragile. They, they can be so easily manipulated so that we-, we feel an obligation to protect them against the evil force. And, b- and by doing so, they have to exert their own kind of normative and moral judgment. So I, I don't want to... Uh, so this is a, an example that Sam Harris cited and, and, and I guess people can agree or disagree, but he was saying during the Hunter Biden story, uh, he said the, the media is clearly biased in terms of uh, trying to control this. Sure, it's, it may be Russian fed. sure, it may be uh, misinformation, but, but the media almost felt an obligation to control the story because they feel like Americans would really get led astray uh, and uh, by by this new story, and it ended up being the, the classic uh, Barbara Streisand effect that they actually blew up a little bit more, because I mean the, probably the New York New York Post article originally didn't have any attractions, but because the media tried so hard to suppress it, it became so huge. And 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 it seems that we are in this very weird uh, dilemma, which is any sort of slight deviation from uh, what is perceived to be right. And any slight deviation from the, uh, upholding this uh, pristine picture of truth would completely derail us our, our social discourse and, and country back to a, another four years of trump or, or however uh, gloomy outcome that the journalists and, and tech media complex may perceive to be um and, and, and we, we just seem to be in this downward spiral because that leads more people to not trust the media landscape and the media landscape feels their worries is is validated and so on.
1: Right. The healing of trust is impossible to do. People are suspicious of the channels and they're continuously being accused of having agendas other than serving you as the observers, listener, watcher, what have you. So I think that there's a lot of danger in this realm, particularly because of the aroused suspicion that is the precondition now. The unravelling you're talking about, the feedback loop, uh, is, is related to the degree of suspicion and distrust that, that is what you might call in the fabric of society already.
0: Yes. Um, it, it, by the way, it is really funny. I w- before this interview happened, I was talking to my friends and they were, they were warning me. They said, Tiger, you have to <laughs> in some way be careful because it's not necessarily what you say. It's, it's but how you say it, because if, if you mention certain examples or certain buzzwords that trigger people uh, to, to think some other direction or, or, or if the way that you are portraying some of your ideas uh, might, could, could easily be misinterpreted by people uh, as, as you are not who you are. And, and, and I feel like the fact that we have to uh, have these kind of conversations these days almost shows uh, how, how slight deviations from, from the, the, the script uh, of the mainstream, um, what is commonly acceptable in, in different circles, any slight deviation from that script would almost result in immediate banishment. And, and it seems very... Uh, I'm not very optimistic about, about where, where things are yeah. headed in that yeah, sense.
1: Yeah, and I so, see you know, people like YouTube and others now, appearing on all, on both sides of the spectrum to be taking things off repeatedly to essentially not be a party to controversy. And right. and that may, which you might call, deaden the debate. I talked earlier about fomenting broad-based critical discourse, narrowing, narrowing the acceptable is going in the other direction.
0: And it I guess we talked about so much about media and I really care about media because media is literally how information is filtered and disseminated. And I feel like what we're doing right now is dimension reduction. That's what traditional legacy media and and, uh, social media are doing is that you have a 64-dimensional view by someone like Dr. Fauci and you reduce it to the two-dimensional because you can can spread it faster. But you might be losing a lot of information and, and as you reduce those uh, the journalists passed down their own judgments regarding what is right and what is wrong, and, and uh, which means nowadays the expert classes become more fragile, not because they're wrong per se, but because it's just much harder to operate under this environment of, of uh, and I hope hopefully I think podcasting is doing a good job. I mean uh, we're having a long conversation w- w- which could expand some of the dimensions uh, and, and I think that's the, the true value of podcasting is that it expands the Overton window of the kinds of discussions that we can have uh, and the topics that we're allowed to discuss and we feel comfortable to discuss because I don't feel like uh, somebody would take my words out of context and then then attack me.
1: And check out more from the Institute for New Economic Thinking at ineteconomics.org. And I'll tell it and speak it and think it and breathe it. And reflect from the mountains so all souls can see it. And I'll stand on the ocean until I start sinking. And I'll know my song well before I start singing.
0: You've been listening to Policy Punchline, a podcast generously supported by the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance at Princeton University. We would also like to encourage you to follow other podcasts produced by Princeton University, such as Politics and Polls by the Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs. Policy Punchline is intended to be informational only and does not reflect nor represent the views of Princeton University or the Julius Rubinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance. For more information on subscription, donation, volunteering, or contact, please visit policypunchline.com. Thank you again for listening.